Welcome to the Founders Keepers podcast. Interviews exploring stories behind the founders of change-making businesses in medtech, biotech, and health tech, and what makes those founders tick. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Hatton, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Rob Coleman, the CEO and co-founder of Codagenics. Codagenics is a clinical stage biotechnology company that has raised over 25 million US dollars in funding, developing vaccine products against influenza, the respiratory syncytial virus, dengue, and others currently under development. Codagenics uses a computer-based algorithm called SAVE, which stands for Synthetic Attenuated Virus Engineering, which designs viral genomes identical to wild-type strains at an amino acid level, but which make less protein in human cells. These highly attenuated viruses are then used in their vaccine development. Rob is a trained virologist and entrepreneur whose pivotal advances in synthetic biology have been noted in peer-reviewed journals such as Science, Nature Biotechnology, and PNAS. In this episode, we cover competing in the COVID-19 vaccine race with Pfizer, diversifying in business, and metaphorically building the plane while you're flying. Let's get started. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really keen to understand your background. Um, I appreciate you've had many different chapters or acts in your career to date. So in your own words, if you could tell me about your journey as an entrepreneur, um, as a doctor that has led you to where you are now. I can't wait to hear well, it. First, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today. So on, on your podcast, I would say my journey, this has actually been my only career. So I was, I, I got my PhD at Stony Brook University in, in Eckerd Wimmer's lab. He's, we co-founded the Codagenics together. So myself, Eckerd, our chief scientific officer, Stefan Mueller, uh, three, three founders of the company, the core technology was actually my thesis. So uh, thesis work published in science, and then we formulated Codagenics around the company. And if you don't recognize Eckerd's name, firstly, he's just a world-renowned virologist, but more importantly, he was sort of a godfather of synthetic biology. So our work, we're really a synthetic biology company, and we have a platform for vaccine development that really came out of his lab and, and my thesis work. So. Uh, we started as two individuals. We're now 28. We have labs in like an hour east of New York City and also a lab now in Cambridge focused on using the platform to design oncolytic viruses. So it has been a, you know, I was everything. I was both custodian and uh, CEO when it was just two people. And now I'm, and now it's 28 people where I'm, I'm no longer a scientist. I just uh, help run the company. So. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into into that. I do want to ask specifically about your role, but maybe you could tell me about Codagenics as if I were not necessarily someone with a healthcare background, but a layperson. What would I understand that it does and how it works and how it operates and what it's trying to do in healthcare and for healthcare? I think, you know, I think because of the pandemic, everyone thinks they're an expert vaccinologist right now. Everyone thinks they know everything there is to know about vaccines. I think if you ha- take that starting point, and I think those first generation COVID vaccines, they're really just, they are platforms, right? They're really just ways to deliver the antigen or the spike protein to your immune system to make antibodies. So they're really spike focused approaches. They make antibodies. Those antibodies could be susceptible to variants. And I think if we contrast that with the best class of vaccines for humanity have been what are called live attenuated, right? Your measles vaccine smallpox, the only class of vaccine to actually eradicate a disease, right? These things can be globally distributed. The limitation with traditional live vaccines, while they're great, they provide very long-term broad immunity, has been twofold. One, people fear they revert, right? They can go back to wild type. 
um, so they could make you sick. Or they have really, really long time timelines for production. So traditional live vaccines were made by completely random genetic change, right? The scientists literally randomly mutated the measles virus, hoping it would become a safe and effective vaccine. And so Codagenics can solve these two problems using synthetic biology. And so I mentioned Eckerd and working on synthetic biology. He was the first to synthesize a virus from small pieces of DNA. So he literally ordered polio virus through the mail. He ordered 100 MERS or 100 nucleotide long pieces of DNA, stitched them all together, put them in a test tube, and poof, out came the fully replicating polio virus, right? And so what that unlocked is we no longer had to randomly mutate a virus to change. We could actually literally type the sequence of a virus into a computer, right? To achieve, to, We could design a virus however we see fit. So our platform is not an mRNA expressing spike. It's not an adenovirus carrying the spike gene. Instead, it's an algorithm. So if you think about the commonality of all human viruses, it doesn't matter if it's COVID or flu or RSV or Zika, they want to come into your body. They want to make a trillion copies of themselves very, very quickly. And so what our platform does is it takes that wild type, fast, if you will, genetic sequence that can make a trillion viral particles in eight hours. And our algorithm recodes that genetic sequence for slow translation. And then we use Eckerd's approach where you take that new piece of synthetic DNA that has bad codons that we call it. We stitch that back into the virus. And now we've rationally designed a live attenuated vaccine that can't grow in human cells. It can't revert. But most importantly, it has all the proteins of the virus, not just spike. It has spike. It has all the non-structural proteins. So we get not just antibodies. We get T-cell immunity, mucosal immunity and a much more broad response. So we really have a next generation of approach to make the first class of vaccines, the class of vaccines that have actually been safe and really sort of the bedrock of, of uh, vaccinology from the beginning. So I'm not sure if that answered your question as a rambly. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great because it actually brings me on to a question I had for you, which is I understand you've got a, a live attenuated intranasal vaccine candidate that has just entered phase three clinical trials. And this is in yeah. collaboration with the World Health Organization, the WHO, and the Serum Institute of India. So I wondered if you could tell me about that partnership and program. Yep. So we, we were selected by the WHO uh, because there are still very low vaccination rate countries, right? One, two the virus is still transmitting. So first-generation vaccines good at preventing severe disease. They've stumbled a little bit with variant emergence, right, and transmissibility. Uh, and so we satisfied multiple desires of the WHO. An easy-to-administer vaccine, it's an intranasal dropper, something that could be stored. So it can be stored in, the, in your regular fridge for over a, a year. Um, and more importantly, it provides mucosal immunity, and we demonstrated potential for efficacy in our early clinical development. And so it's an intranasal vaccine, and it's probably in the last placebo-controlled vaccine trial for COVID that's occurring, where we're looking essentially for efficacy versus placebo in a very expansive phase three. So to date, we've dosed, um, and no one's, your podcast will be the first to hear this, we've dosed about 10,000 individuals, and we'll go up to maybe... 30,000 and beyond. So uh, very excited for the outcome there. Excellent. You heard it here first then. Um, yes. Pivoting slightly back to one of the points you raised earlier, which is the advent of COVID. I wondered, how did the advent of COVID impact Codagenics as a business, both from a mission-driven perspective and also a fundamental business management and strategy perspective? Did you have to pivot much? Did it affect the way that you worked and the direction that you went in? Tell me about that. 
Yeah, we were sort of all hands on deck, obviously. We think, so for a, an emerging biotech of at the time, only 20 individuals, we were only about five months behind Pfizer. And this, uh, of when they started their phase one and when we had permission from, from the UK MHRA to start dosing in, in London. So for us, that was already a great achievement. You know, it sort of naturally slowed down other programs because there just wasn't interest in clinical sites to run our RSV trial or our flu trial. So uh, once we made our vaccine, then we and we handed it to Serum to do large scale manufacturing. While we were involved in the management, obviously, and overseeing of the clinical trials, it allowed us to pick pick things back up. So there was a natural slowdown in some of our other very exciting programs, like our intranasal RSV and our universal flu program. Um, but we've been able to revive those and they weren't completely uh, put in the freezer. Well, you mentioned Pfizer and being just so closely behind on vaccine development for COVID-19. What is it that you'd say differentiates Codagenics from its competitors, and especially when you are competing with pharma giants such as Pfizer in this arena? I mean, I think to me, and circling back to, you know, of course I'm biased, but I think live vaccines are the best, right? Um, they provide not just antibodies, but they also provide T cells, mucosal immunity. And so if I look at the phase one data, and we'll further prove this out in this phase, in the WHO trial, we were able to intranasally vaccinate individuals. 100% of them had a zero response, meaning at least fourfold antibody rise. We also were able to show that we could give them a second dose of the vaccine in their nose, and there was no detectable replication of the vaccine, meaning essentially we made mucosal immunity for, for that individual against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And thirdly, and to me, the most the coolest aspect and really what proves the idea that that live vaccines are very broad is we did this trial in very early 2021. We collected the T cells or the PBMCs from those individuals. We actually waited a year. We then took those T cells or PBMCs, we mixed them with an Omicron peptide pool, and we showed that all the patients could make at least a five-fold response to, to Omicron. Now, if you really think about what that means, that we vaccinated those individuals in London, they made an anti-Omicron cellular immune response before the strain even existed, right? And just think about that really supports the idea that live vaccines provide broad variant resistant immunity. And I think I think it's fair for me to say that there's a bit of fatigue, right, with the injectable vaccines. People are just getting a little bit tired of getting their boosters. I think they're a little bit tired of the virus, you know, People are being vaccinated and still getting ill, right? And so I think there's, if you can come to the market with a differentiated product that's an intranasal that can provide broader immunity and maybe slow down the rate of transmission, that there may be a re renewed interest, especially in advance or during the next wave. So. Excellent. And your passion is obviously very clear, specifically for live attenuated vaccines. And I wonder if that comes across when it comes to talking to investors, for instance. And I wonder if you could maybe tell me about some of the investors you partner with, how you establish and build relationships with them, effectively demonstrate that they can trust you with their money. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think the investors, and rightly so, is our, the COVID space is still, while it's our most advanced program, uh, it's a very unknown of exactly what that market will look like in the medium and longer term, right? The regulators are still sorting what they want to do with regards to how we'll have a seasonal vaccine and what the market will look like and what the surrogate endpoint may be or requirements to make a seasonal vaccine. So I think the investors that we've been able, you know, we just closed around 
we're actually entertaining over subscription. So there's now, once we close the money, now more people want to invest, um, which is exciting. But they really focus more on our RSV, flu, and cancer programs. Those are very tangible. There's a clear unmet need, especially for RSV. And we have a solution there that, that others may not as well. So I'm not sure if that answered no, no, because it gives me a different perspective on, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's an enormous amount of market uncertainty and, you know, not just for the vaccine um, sort of industry, as it were. Um, so I'm curious to understand what your experience has been of that. But in addition to that, my next question is, aside from what you've mentioned, have there been any particular standout challenges that you've faced so far with building codogenics? Um I mean, there's a lot of challenges. There were a lot of challenges, right? I'm still here, though, so that's <laughs> that's good. But uh, I think you know what one of my investors used is that we're sort of as a small emerging biotech, we're building the plane as we're as we're going. I think we've been very successful. I think we've been actually criticized earlier, a few maybe a few years ago, that we had too many programs. I think it actually now, as the script has flipped, seeing what's happening in biotech, where you have all of these binary companies where they have one asset and they've raised a lot of money. If it doesn't work out, you see a massive loss, right? For the investors, for the insiders. We've been very fiscally responsible and we've built a very diverse pipeline that will have multiple inflection points over the next 12, 24 months. Not just, you know, it's not like we have all the proverbial eggs in our in the COVID basket, right? We have RSV program, we have flu, we have oncology. So we'll be able to diversify the risk for our investors um, as we go forward. And what can we expect in, say, the next 12 to 24 months, that short to medium term from Codagenics? I think, obviously, the COVID program will maybe read out in Q2 or early Q3. It depends on the attack rate of the virus, right? That's not within our control. Uh, What is within our control is our RSV program. So we're dosing in the next couple of weeks. This is a pediatric intranasal RSV. I think, and just to spend 30 seconds on our market differentiating there is, you know, last winter, I'm sure it was the case in in the UK, but here in the States, the RSV season was terrible, right? Very bad RSV season. It actually really afflicted the very young, the six-month to two-year-old population or zero to six-month population. Now, if you weren't paying that close of attention, you knew there's a bad RSV season and then GSK and Pfizer were announcing awesome phase three or successful phase three results. I wouldn't even classify them as awesome. I just say they announced successful phase three. But those phase threes were in 55s and above. The attack rate, the hospitalization rate for 55s and above in 2022 was one to two per hundred thousand. Okay. The hospitalization rate for the zero to six, uh, zero to five year olds was 1500 per hundred thousand. Okay. And so there's actually an urgent need for a vaccine in particular for the six month and two year old population. And that's what we're, we're targeting. And we have an open IND and a fast track designation to support that. And the data for that, so circling all the way back to your question is that data should read out close to the end of this year, if not in, in January of next year, showing that the vaccine is safe and that we make an efficacious uh, uh, immune response in that critically unmet need of six month old to five year olds. And we've covered some of the current challenges in the industry, but what would you say you're most optimistic about regarding the future of the vaccine industry? Yeah, I think, I actually think what I hope, and of course I'm biased because this is how we've structured the company, but I think the 
what's happening in the biotech is actually good where you're getting a refinement of goals and maybe a refinement of how to actually invest in and build these companies. And I'm, I think this is a sort of natural cycle where maybe you need to have a little bit of restructuring, reorganization, and the companies like Codagenics that emerge, I think will be very strong and very attractive as partners um, or just growing on ourselves or by ourselves organically. And perhaps more focusing on you and your role, could you tell me if such a typical day might exist, what a typical day would look like for you in the business? That's a good, um, there is no typical day. <laughs> so today I woke up early. I started a 6 a.m. call with some potential partners in the MENA region. Then I had a call about uh, with our preclinical vaccines team reviewing some data. Um, other days I'll be traveling. Some days I'll be only talking to lawyers and accountants, which is like my least favorite activity. Um, so it's, I will say it's a, always a long day, exciting day, but you can never say like I have a set, a set calendar, <laughs> um, whether it be group meetings or partners or investors, it's all fun though. So I would say I'm a very fortunate person in that, as I said, this is my first job out of PhD, right? And so now I've built the company to with my co-founders and my obviously very supportive investors who I'm always indebted to, built it to about 28, um, 28 individuals and raised about $100 million to date. So. Well, that, that leads me on to my next question quite nicely because you've summarized a lot of your successes there. And my question is, what do you personally think has been the biggest contributor to your success? Yeah, I think, I think long-term committed investors is, was very key. I think people, investors who are focused on the science, understand that biotech takes long, have long timelines in vaccine. They could see the potential of the platform early on, but they knew that there would be some sort of trial and error, if you will, both clinic uh, or in preclinical settings, where we really had to understand how to appropriately use the algorithm, right? And how much deoptimization or bad codons we would need to put into the virus. And so we have now, I think this is why we're entering the hockey stick phase of the company, right? Those years where we've been sort of quiet and doing clinical trials, primate studies, we've now finally know, settled on this is the amount of the optimization to put in. These are the gene segments to target. And that's how we've been able to have this explosion in the pipeline where COVID, RSV, flu, all entering the clinic at the same time. So I think a lot of the success was attributed to my patient investors. I think the thick skin, I've probably heard no a lot more than I've heard yes, right? And that doesn't seem to bother me. So um, eventually there'll be too many yeses and we'll have to start turning them down. So It's a good problem to have, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> That's what we get for sure. Yeah. Would you do anything differently if you were to start again on that note? Oh, uh, I don't know. That's a That's a very challenging question. Um, I don't think so. Maybe uh, I don't like to like Monday morning quarterback. I don't know if that's a cliche. That's, that's good for the UK audience, but, uh, they can Google that and see what that means. But, uh, I don't like to actually do that and triage, like where I made mistakes. It's everyone makes mistakes. So the best is to just keep moving forward. And lastly, is there any other advice that you would give to would be business founders? Um, I would say the early investor choice now it's that's easy for me to say because i'm in that position right and in a, in a challenging environment 
also very easy for me to say in this position. And I'm, you know, we still need to raise more capital as a company, but I'd say that selection of the appropriate investor that you, that not just willing to write a check, but actually sort of gets the sort of mission of the company is actually very vital, right? Because when you do stumble, they're not just going to disappear or figure out how to, you know, triage or get some of their money back, but rather will help you solve the problems, willing to provide additional capital to see you through a tougher period. I think this is, this is crucial. And some of the founders, you know, I've seen too, maybe are a little bit too hungry for the cash. They'll just take anybody. But if it's not of quality or someone you actually personally get along with, I think that's, uh, it's just setting yourself up for a harder, harder journey. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Founders Keepers. And if you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on whatever listening platform you are using. Be sure to tune in next time for another founder's story.